sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yeah, we are piling them up show after show after show. And uh, I'll tell you what, this the great guests just keep arriving. Thanks in no part to the efforts of Justin Schwind. Thank you, Justin, for being such uh, a, a, a great hand in the booking department. Hey, Aaron. Well, yeah, well, today's guest was uh, surprising and... I was so delighted to meet him and have the conversation that you listeners are about to listen to. And in fact, it is a long enough conversation that I just don't think we should spend any time talking about, uh, you know, what's happened between last night and this midday (laughs) interview. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We can dispense with the banter and get straight to the heart of the show. Let's do it. Listeners, stay with us. We'll be right back here on the Powerbank Podcast. You know, listening to podcasts like this one is certainly helpful to your recovery. And so are the many books that we recommend. But recovery is not something that any of us can do by independent study. None of us can recover alone. We heal in relationship. So it's crucially important for you to find a recovery community, a Samson Society group, or a Pure Desire group, or a Celebrate Recovery or other 12-step programs somewhere where you can bring your real self and say the real truth. And there's another resource that you can draw on, one that's been extremely helpful to me over the years. In those times when my recovery has plateaued or when I've gotten stuck or I've started to lose ground, I've found that there's nothing like time with a highly skilled, well-trained therapist or recovery coach to get me moving again. Now, sometimes that's taken the form of a weekly counseling appointment. At other times, it's meant attending a week-long or a weekend intensive. If you're ready to take a dramatic step forward in your recovery, let me suggest LifeWorks Christian Counseling. Uh, These are good folks. The Hunters and their staff get addiction. They understand trauma. And their approach is both biblically and scientifically sound. They work with individuals and couples. They're based in Madison, Mississippi, but they can work with you anywhere remotely through Zoom. And at various times throughout the year, they also run weekend intensives for Samson guys. To learn more, go to lifeworks.ms. That's lifeworks.ms. Or give them a call at 601-790-0583. And welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. How fortunate we are to have as our guest this week a new author with a familiar name, Blaine Eldridge, author of a book called The Paradise Kings, joining us, I assume, perhaps wrongly, from somewhere in Colorado. Is that where you are, Blaine? That is correct. I am joining you from rural Colorado. And I'll give some hints. I'm near a town called Peyton. I'm in a basin. And there is a large ranch nearby. And if that's enough for you to drop by, uh, come on over and we'll have a chat. 
I have oh, no idea what you're talking about. So I feel like <laughs> even though I work for a company in Colorado, I still have no idea where you are, Nate. But your laugh, I think you do. We'll we'll figure it out. We really will. Well, uh, fine. Okay, go ahead. Hmm. Uh. Oh. I, okay. I've got it. The name, by the way, is familiar. We've interviewed your dad, who was absolutely delightful as a guest, uh, and broke all my preconceptions. Uh, I only knew him from his writing, and then to have that conversation was terrific. Uh. We like our listeners to get to know our guests on a personal level at the front end. So would you mind giving us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of your life, Blaine growing up the son of a famous author, and where you, um, how the road got you to where you are today? But before you do, Blaine, well, <laughs> you can say hi. This is the longest introduction where it's like, guests do not speak. We're going to talk for a while. So you can say hi, but that's all because I have something to say. Hi. Okay, so Blaine has written a book called The Paradise King. And I am not usually, I read a lot of Stephen King, stuff like that. I don't read interesting biblical books as much as I did when I was in my 20s and 30s. But I read the synopsis of your book. And if it is not this cool, I'm coming to Colorado to kick a dog. I want to read this because as you tell your story, what I'm most curious is how you came to write this book. So listeners, here's what's written about this book. It's called The Paradise King. It's coming out this month or has it already come out? You may answer, it's Blaine. It's coming out <laughs> this month. Depending on when this sh show airs, almost certainly the book is released. Oh, All yeah, versions come out on November 15th. Okay. Totally okay. good point. So here's what's written. Listeners, brace yourself, possibly grab hold of something. The Bible is a piercing drama, a tale of prophets and wandering spirits, heroic mothers and flashing swords, cosmic mountains and dry, shadowy Sheol. It's the true story that defines the nature and purpose of reality, and its claims are astonishing. But few modern readers experience the Bible that way. This book draws upon years of research to illuminate the story of the Bible through the lives of six kingly characters. From Adam to Jesus, the Paradise King combines thrilling retellings of famous stories with cutting-edge scholarship and robust theology to explore topics such as the Bible's picture of evil, its sophisticated supernatural worldview, and its complex picture of the human condition. The result is a stunning portrait of Jesus of Nazareth, the king and God and sacrifice who conquered death and overthrew the spiritual powers of this world and whose offer remains open to all. Follow me, come home to reality, and heal your humanity. Wow, Aaron, I wish you had been available when we made the audiobook. That was beautifully done. Thank you. Dude, that is the best synopsis of a book I think I've ever heard in my life. Wow, so, that is high praise. Thank you. It's, a, it's amazing. All right, so back to back to Nate's question. I want to know how you came to the place, obviously, in your story where this was at, at your core and your heart, and you had to write it down. Thank you, guys. Great questions. By the way, 
Before I leap in, pirate monk, I've dug mm-hmm. around trying to wrap my mind around that name. Where mm-hmm. did it come from? What does that mean? Orient me to where we are, and then I'll tell you a bit about my story. Well, for us, it's, it's a metaphor of the uh, integrated Christian life. We're a Christian group, all Christian guys, all with a genuine monk part, but all of us also with a pirate part that we were told, most of us, we had to suppress and somehow eliminate. We tried to eliminate uh, the pirate and just be the monk, and we all failed. What we now understand is that uh, the monk is not all good. He's good, but not all good. The pirate is bad, but not all bad. If we can take the best of both, put them together, and be the same man all the time, we got something. Man. Beautiful. I was just going to answer your question by saying your Abba loves you so much, Blaine, you motherfucker. And I felt (laughs) like that was my answer. Yours was way better, Nate. Good job. Uh, Okay. All right. Yours was I like you guys. I think. You know, (laughs) it was interesting because once upon a time in a legal framework, pirates were called the enemy of all mankind. Mm -hmm. And as I'm sure you know, with your background, Nate, there's an early Christian saint, a brilliant man from Alexandria called Athanasius, who was called Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius Mm -hmm. against the world. So there are similarities there. Sure, sure. But you want to know a bit about growing up the son of a fascinating, famous author. As you can Mm -hmm. imagine, there are no complexities that go into that life. <laughs> and my identity has always been very secure, which it remains to this day. <laughs> just kidding. You've met my dad, so you know he is a surprise. He yeah. is a truly enjoyable person. I describe my dad as being like a mix between Elijah the prophet and Willy Wonka. <laughs> That's the best description ever. It's very true. Uh, on the one hand, he is passionate about mm-hmm. Jesus. He's passionate about the life of the heart. He's a great storyteller. He grew up in the theater. He has a love for fiction. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he is this peculiar pop up the stairs in the middle of the of the day with an idea person. And Mm -hmm. the simplest way to say it is that trade-offs. One of the great advantages of growing up with my parents is that they actually believed full stop. Yeah. You know, some psychologists differentiate between three layers of belief, external beliefs, what you want the world to think you believe, internal Mm -hmm. beliefs, what you wish you believed, true beliefs, what you actually believed. And Mm -hmm. in the crew that you roll with, who sound like very Jesus-y people, you see that on display all the time with what identity a person puts out, what the narrative is that they're trying to believe, and then what they can't quite get past because, you know, we rarely violate our true beliefs. The Mm -hmm. psychologist M. Scott Peck called mental health a commitment to reality at all costs. Well, if your parents believe in Jesus, they have come home to reality, they want to see people transform, they want authenticity, they want the changed heart. I'm telling you, it's a very good thing. 
And so my parents' commitment, an ongoing attempt to show up to life, to be real, to engage the heart, imprinted on me. And it sowed a really deep attraction to Jesus. I think before there was an experience of God, there was at least the allure. I saw what a life with God could be like and the kinds of characters it could bring in. Okay, so pause here. How many, do you have siblings? Okay, I have two brothers and I am in the middle. You're in the middle. So you're the, oh, the middle kid. Okay. All right. And how old a guy are you? Can we ask that? that, that I you ask can that ask too. that. That is funny. Uh, it's the second conversation I've had recently where someone has said, am I allowed to ask your age? Uh, <laughs> what are you worried about? What are you, what am, uh, I am 32. So I'm okay. a bit of a whippersnapper here in the middle. And man, I most of the things that actually you could read about birth order that apply to a middle child are accurate. And let me tell you, <laughs> some of the complexity. My dad is, in fact, a very gifted person. And mm-hmm. he is a great speaker. He's very intelligent. I got my early education in philosophy by raiding his bookshelf. And okay. I remember being on the way to the Grand Tetons for a family camping trip, and I was reading a man named Kant, and <laughs> how, how how old were you there? I need to picture I was it properly. Probably fifteen or sixteen. Okay. Mm-hmm. And all young men, you know, want to express themselves in a revolutionary way. And sometimes it is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And sometimes it is continental philosophy. <laughs> and I was telling my dad about a concept called the antimonies of pure reason, and he knew what they were. It was just astonishing. Now the downside is that. I concluded very early on that God used amazing people. I would have denied that in public, but again, right, a true belief is that you have to be pretty exceptional to get to be invited into a life that looked like my parents' life. And they have a very rare position in the world. And I knew that I was not that gifted, that I was not smart enough intelligent enough. See, I'm repeating myself here. I knew I was not enough to be the kind of person that God would choose if you had to have credentials. Now, what, why, this, is, why? this is the Pirate Monk podcast, so you know that's not how it works. Right, but right. Still, but I, I want to know why, how you came to that conclusion. In your own mind, Like, was it simply looking at them or what was happening in you? Because just having talked to you for a few minutes, none of those things seem like you. So how did you, as a young man, come to those conclusions? Dying. You know, know, I'm a pretty good self-deceiver, but not a perfect self-deceiver. And I knew how hard I had to try to for life to seem easy. So I wanted, I didn't think of myself as a smart person until, you know, I had a teacher in high school who thought I was a smart person. And all of a sudden I thought, man, hey, maybe I'm kind of a smart guy, but gosh, I have to try really hard to understand what people are talking about. So it can't be that I'm actually like the gifted people around me for whom it seems so easy 
So when I finally went to graduate school, I would read the readings twice before the class that actually taught them just Mm -hmm. to try to wrap my mind around these texts that were so hard. I think also socially I came out of homeschool, then a short stand at a private Christian middle school, making friends, relating with the world was so hard. Now I am a fake it till you make it kind of person. And perfection is a myth that people want to believe, right? They, we want to think that life is different than it is. And so the more I was able to project a confident exterior, the more attractive people were. So it kind of worked trying to seem invincible. I was deeply aware on an internal level. One, relationship is hard. Two, the world is hard. Three, experiencing the love of God is challenging, something that in many spheres remains true to this day. So it was in the space of that disconnection, my experience of how hard life was versus how effortless some people could make it seem that I started to think, man, I just must not be the kind of person who is talented enough to be invited into a really cool story with God. So that that's very revealing. As effortless as people made it seem speaks to those assumptions, even with the people around you, that they didn't have to put the same work in. You were saying the last step, or for some people, their more polished final product, but you were in the middle of the process and assuming possibly based on that statement that they didn't have their own or the same process you did. Oh yeah. And you know, as people, until we have learned, until we have conditioned ourselves to do it, we are not eager to expose the vulnerable parts of ourselves to the elements. Right. And so what happens is that I think many of us, but myself in particular show up to life feeling like we missed the class on my brother and I did a podcast for a long time together that was for guys in their 20s. And one thing we had to constantly say was, it looks like it's going better for other people. It's not. We're just (laughs) not used to narrating the difficulty because it feels like weakness. And most of us think that if we're weak in public, we'll be attacked. Now, that turns out to be in the right right contexts, having developed a healthy culture, untrue, but without without really intentional steps, most of us, certainly I will fake it. And we'll just Mm -hmm. not say how hard it is. And if I'm doing that, if my friends are doing that, if what's developing between us is an inauthentic culture that doesn't make space for difficulty, what we're going to wind up with is thinking, man, these guys have really got it together, and I am the one who is a failure. Nate, you have no idea what he's talking about, do you? Oh, no, not at all. Are you kidding? I have been uh, skating through life this whole time, and... uh... (laughs) Yes, that's why you started a show, inviting people to invite the two, uh, receive the two parts of their nature. Yeah. (laughs) 
I know. This is very on brand for you guys. So I imagine you get it. (laughs) Yeah, we absolutely do that. That's a beautiful description, I think, of the typical adolescent experience. And uh, for me, I mean, I carried that on until I was uh, in my 40s and got into recovery and found a place, a safe place for the very first time to really be authentic. Yeah. In the the basement of churches. Yeah. Yeah. So... So you went off to college and graduate school. Was it in your mind at that point? I'm going to pursue like religious education, or did you feel like I want to break away from that? Where was your head and heart and your relationship with God as you ventured off into early manhood? Well, being an outsider is a double-edged sword. On the Mm -hmm. one hand, it's a superpower. On the other, it tends to poison belonging over time. So wait, 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 don't, I need to think about what you just said. Double-edged sword, superpower. Yes. But it poisons. Belonging Talk more about time. the poison, the poisoning. Cause that's, that's huge. Oh, yeah. I think some people want to be an outsider for why you said it, but they don't know about the poisoning part. There was a brilliant, you know, French Algerian writer in the post-colonial era, who is, I can't tell, he's relevant to this, and his name is Franz Fanon. And he wrote uh, an essay that if I, I would love to make all teenagers read it. But what he saw coming was he saw a revolutionary class emerging that primarily identified itself as a subjugated people. And he warned, he said, don't make this your primary identity because it's going to backfire what happens when you win the revolution? Can you, do you want to be more identified by where you belong or where you do not belong? Belonging can create a culture of thriving. Unbelonging will fragment. Be careful. Well, he is kind of like a postmodern prophet because the revolutionary class identified primarily as a revolutionary class. Let me tell you where I experienced Franz Fanon's warning was I grew up not going to church for the most part. You know, we did a house church at some point, but one thing, you know, I was in a city that had a has kind of a famous flavor of Christian culture, focused on the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is here in Colorado Springs, and it's a mega church culture. And the interesting thing is there are so many wonderful, true, virtuous, real gritty people and followers of Jesus here in Colorado Springs. But the the culture has a certain religious vibe that mm-hmm. we as a family were not attracted towards. And then obviously my parents as writers, they were advocating for a more robust, a more real, a more anchored Christianity. So I primarily identified myself as a guy who does not go to church which, or is different than Christians. That's an amazing thing because about the time that many of the people were, that I grew up with were leaving their faith, were coming of age and they had grown up in what gets called church culture, or Christian culture, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. that is. I mean, we kind of know what it is, but it, it's slightly more varied than the title suggests. And they were leaving following Jesus for all kinds of things. 
And I was doubling down because I had never been a part. I had never experienced the shortcomings of those cultures. That wasn't my story. Mm -hmm. So that's the superpower part, right? Is I am a revolutionary. The difficulty is that choosing to be identified in terms of belonging is an ongoing difficulty. So finding uh, community, becoming a part of something, it hits a nerve and I would react against it. I still actually, to a large extent, react against it. And I don't think that's a good thing. So I went to a couple of different colleges. I went to graduate school. I bounced around the West Coast, California, Washington State, British Columbia. And all during that time, couple interesting things were happening. I think that at a key moment in California, I had a radical encounter with the Holy Spirit, which was wonderful. There is, just to keep this conversation anchored in old things, there is probably my favorite heretic is a man named Origen. He is a brilliant thinker, uh, leader in the early church, and... He was one of the first guys, at least to get down on paper, this idea of the three ways, that there are three stages uh, to in the formation of a person and that they have certain attributes. Stage one, he says, is the outward journey. It's swashbuckling spirituality. Eros is the driver. Mm-hmm. So the abundant energy that just, you know, you can't quite direct it into the right place of the teen through their 20s. That's all stage one. And in that stage, God loves to teach a person through success. And the encounters with God and with people and with music, with art, they tend to be pretty romantic. They tend to be spectacular. And often later in life, when people are describing the development of a passion, they'll point to something that happened in that stage one success, Mm -hmm. drama-driven life stage. Well, in that stage, I bounced around what, you know, is sometimes called charismania. And again, by never fully belonging in like a Pentecostal or a charismatic church, I was spared the failures Mm -hmm. of particular people in particular places. Their excesses were never my problem. But I saw God heal people. I saw people get out of wheelchairs. I saw so much of the spiritual world that made it clear, wow, God is pretty epic. And Mm -hmm. by the end of that time, I'll say I was pretty jaundiced. I have a hard time keeping my crises of faith in order. Sometimes I try to number them. But by the time I left (laughs) California and was going to Washington State, I was... Uh, a, a bit in one of those disillusioned periods. But it's funny how these things can come together. At just the right time in Washington State, I had my first run-in with a died-to-the-wool reformed church. Now, ref- mm-hmm. I, I couldn't even tell you at the time what this was, the centrality of confession and emphasis on total depravity and sin. Not, none of this was you know, my lingua franca. I did not know what they were talking about. But it just so happened that it was at a season in my life where entering a community 
that prioritized the discipline of confession was absolutely revolutionary. So it was incredible Mm -hmm. to get around with some guys and talk about what was not working and also uh, kind of refuse to buy anything else was a part of that church's culture. I love that church. They were so great. It blew my hair back to encounter this whole other dimension of Mm -hmm. life following Jesus, a piece that I had been missing. And it was in that context, you know, I got married. I thought I was going to be a college professor and I thought I was going to teach probably rhetoric. How do people Mm -hmm. share meaning and coordinate action on basically a dare, I wound up applying rhetoric, which is a field that comes out of, you know, Greek communication, Greek speeches. On a dare, I ended up applying it to stock market algorithms and how do you make them behave more like people. And it was this whole thing that has very little, if any, bearing on anything else I've ever done. So when people say, what did you do in grad school? I say, it was kind of Weird. I don't know that it was a mistake or wasted time exactly because it was kind of fun, but it's just an outlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that time, I got to encounter the academy, sort of, you know, the intelligentsia. What's their plan to change mm-hmm. people? What's their plan to fix the world? And at its best and at its worst, I think it's both not going to work. You know, at its best, better information and social engineering at its worst top down brilliant solutions both of which i think are have uh very little power to change human beings i actually think they're even rooted in bad psychology a bad Mm -hmm. view of how Mm -hmm. humans are wired yeah so i finished the graduate degree i was looking at phd programs what am i going to do and i thought I just don't want to waste my time. I don't think this is going to work. The problems that people are facing, even in my own world, are too pressing for this. So I left uh, the academy and I wound up running a publishing. Oh, sorry. I'll slow down here. Well, before you, in so many of these pieces, there is the, the, feeling of pressing problems of the people around you. Yes. Like even when you uh, describe the the economic stuff you studied, it still revolved around people and how is this serving people? And then your next steps are that's not enough for me in serving that and I guess I want to understand a little bit more of what what that looked like. How would you define that feeling inside of you or that urge or unction of, I, I got to do blank because of blank. What is that that you keep describing on, on the fringes of what you're saying? I'd like to say that to my friends here in Payton, that life is a professional sport played by amateurs. So we have saying, life is real, you guys. So while I am in grad school, my brother-in-law, beautiful, brilliant guy, a couple years younger than me, gets a traumatic brain injury running. 
and is in decline. So I'm locked away in the halls of the secular academy and he's in and out of hospitals attempting suicide over and over. Eventually he succeeds. And at the same time, I'm watching the lives of my friends unravel. You know, I Mm. say that I like to talk about the situation of the church in late modernity. Listen, friends, it's never easy to be a person, but sometimes, sometimes it's much harder. So I have these real things on the one hand, people struggling. And then on the other, I come across this idea when I'm in the academy and I'm sorry, this is going to get a little jargony, but it's going to make sense. So I'm studying a complex, an evolutionary complex system, which is basically algorithm set three to create uh, a structured environment. And the very first people to succeed in modeling a complex system came out of Santa Fe. It was this interdisciplinary research group that said, we want to model complex activity. And they succeed in making this program. It was called the SFISM, the Santa Fe Institute Artificial Stock Market. I spent way a portion of my life spending all my time with that thing. And when they ran it, something happened. So they run this bad boy and they watch the algorithms making their trades and they watch kind of something that looks like stable market behavior emerge. And, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. And then all of a sudden, after one market cycle, it explodes. And they think, maybe this is a glitch in the program. Run it again. Goes a little longer, explodes. And what they realized they were observing empirically was an idea that had existed in theory that every so often complex systems go through what's called a regime change, where the ordinary rules break down, invert, go away. And those are hard times for whoever it is that makes up that system. Well, there's very little doubt that in many domains right now, we are living through a regime change, a time when the ordinary rules invert or break or go away. So partly I'm in the academy and people are talking about, yeah, have you read, you know, Peter Turchin and the mathematics of history and how we're headed towards a very difficult societal time? And I'm sitting in my chair going, eh, I have a question. What's the plan in view of all this? Like, what are we going to do for people on the ground? How are we going to preserve humanity? That's a big question, but does anyone have any ideas? So it was those things. It was, it was in fact, kind of a theoretical idea of, listen, you're living through a unique time. Uh, you know, between the two poles of there's nothing new under the sun and the sky is falling, you know, we're somewhere a few standard deviations away from the mean towards the sky is falling. Like, yeah, you're living through a hard time. It's hard to be a human being right now. And my friends were suffering and I wanted to know what God's plan was to address human nature, to change people. So that drove me out of the ivory tower. Yeah. Mm. And not just what's God's plan for this, but it sounds like, and, and what role do I get to play in participating in seeing that plan come to fruition yeah you had a you've got a participatory heart man in some places <laughs> yeah but i did want to do 
something. That's why the first platform that my brother and I started was publishing thing and sons podcast magazine, just trying to talk to guys in their twenties because we realized we were having the same conversation over and over again. And we thought maybe we can have a wider conversation. We can pull some things together. We can decrease the isolation that so many young guys seem to feel. And it was driven by, well, I don't know, let's try this. And then that kind of grew and emerged and was ended up being what I spent most of my 20s doing. Mm-hmm. And what what have been, you must be at like the at the young end of being a millennial, right? Yes, I'm at the young millennial end. Yeah. So I, I'm dying to know because the questions you're asking were so beautiful. Uh, what do you think the benefits and drawbacks were for you being a part of a generation who has been very derided for a whole lot of talk that is unrealistic and a lack of practical action. You clearly were wrestling through that. And so I feel like you probably saw, yeah, I think this is pretty great that I was a part of this generation. And these were some things to overcome because I know we've got a lot of listeners that maybe listen to YouTube things or stuff that pick on millennials. So it's your your chance to stand up for yourself. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, you'd kind of have to get down on the personal level again to answer that question, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, of course, I knew that my generation was derided and at the same time studied and exploited in very unique ways because I spent so much time speaking to millennials, I've read a lot of millennial research. I think it's all very interesting. Mm -hmm. But on the personal level, let's go back to, I am someone who thinks there's just something wrong with him because life feels so hard. And it's not until, you know, I really get into counseling over the past few years of my life that I learn what feels like the user manual to the human condition, right? You start to wonder, where was all this stuff? When Mm -hmm. I have a therapist say, listen, whenever there's a sense of inadequacy, there's a risk of shame. Inadequacy is normal. Shame is dangerous. So you're in a conversation and you say, man, I just don't know what to say next. I should know what to say. Or you're not, you know, your car breaks down and you can't fix it. That's just a sense of inadequacy. I should know what to fix it is the shame element. There's something Mm -hmm. wrong with you and that's why you feel inadequate. Well, I think I took a lot of those things pretty deep. And to soothe the sense of inadequacy, I, for a long time, have been very attracted to visible forms of success. And so even until the last five years, I have loved convention because convention provides a framework inside of which I can be seen to be succeeding. So when my wife and I were getting ready to you know, have our first kid, buy our first little house. She wanted to move out to the country and build and try something risky. I really didn't. I wanted to do something that looked more normal in our context. Because the great thing is, if you fail when you're trying to be conventional, it's not your fault. It's convention's fault. So it was a way of hiding. Mm -hmm. Well, these things, you know, in some therapeutic circles, the Allender Center, for example, they talk about like the gift that your abuser gave you or, you know, the gift that your addiction gave you. And I think something that's 
unique and amazing in Christianity is that Christianity doesn't call bad things good. It just says that by a miracle, they're transformed. So by Christianity does not like death, but by the mm-hmm. miraculous power of God, it becomes a site of resurrection. So I think one of the gifts of my neurosis and need to succeed is that I wound up getting to do some cool things in cool places. But you're asking, yeah, like, how are you going to beat the millennial vibe? I just wanted to be seen succeeding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but you Mm -hmm. said something, I don't know that an outsider, I've always felt like an outsider. I don't know that I'll ever not feel like that, even though I have found wonderful communities and participated, but the description of an outsider, and I don't, know where you were at when you came to love convention because it became a nice box to hide stuff in. But there seems like there's a huge cognitive soul dissonance, uh, not just a cognitive dissonance, but a soul dissonance in being an outsider who finds security in convention. There's got to be some pain, which possibly led you to wherever you went to next. Oh, yeah. There are so few insiders. Real, it's the, there are so few insiders. I did an interview with a doctor one time, you know, preventative medicine, and he would say, whenever I start working with a new client, I ask them, you know, what's the goal? What's your definition of true life? And you can't use these words, happy, healthy, normal, or well, because you show me a person who is happy, healthy, normal, and well, there is no such person. But again, there's a certain allure to the illusion, right? That there is such Mm -hmm. a thing as convention and there are normal people and a whole pull to (laughs) hide Uh, to foreground what seems acceptable in ourselves and hide what seems unacceptable. And that's how cultures Mm -hmm. become self-reinforcing, often in toxic ways. It's just the interactions between people who feel shame. So what pushed me out of it? Uh, It just hurt too bad, man. I was Mm -hmm. working for my dad, which was actually, on the one hand, a really awesome experience and so fun. On the other hand, there was year over year a growing aggravation because it wasn't what I actually wanted to do on the one hand, and it wasn't soothing the pain of the sense of inadequacy enough. It satisfied Mm -hmm. the loneliness too little to draft off of, well, the way I would describe it is to draft off of my dad's chosenness. Mm -hmm. And finally... And, you know, that aggravation would express itself relationally, primarily working with my older brother. And we're great friends. We have a great relationship now. Working together was our crucible. I shared an office with my older brother for like five years, you guys. And I once had a therapist say that you just would fight proxy wars with your brother. It was your Mm -hmm. preferred site to express frustrations that had no relationship to the two of you. Just so true. Well, I thought that I just didn't want to work with Sam anymore, but what turned out to be true is 
I didn't want to try to feel adequate by drafting, you know, off of my parents chose yeah. chosen this. I didn't want to keep doing a job that though I liked wasn't what I really wanted to be talking about. I was talking to young men about thriving in their twenties, which is an important thing, but I just found mm-hmm. myself never thinking about it. You know, when I wasn't working, there were other yeah. conversations that I wanted to have. And that came to a head and it really felt like the collapse of a life script. I mean, it, I, it can sound pretty moderate here with, oh, it's, you know, it was stressful with your brother and you have successful parents and that has some challenges. It just, it felt like the story that I was telling myself about my life was breaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank God for wise people, honestly, uh, and good counselors and I did my first ever counseling intensive at that time. I was the guy up until then who would always tell my friends that counseling is helpful, but never do it. And I (laughs) finally started going a few layers deeper with some of my long-term friends with just where the pain was. And what became clear in that season was, wow, I'm, I really would like to leave, but I'm terrified to leave. And yet, I know that Jesus is real, and I would like to do something with him. I don't care if it's starting a neighborhood pizza shop. It would be cool to be invited by God to do something. And I did have a few ideas and felt permission to try. So through much travail, I ended up leaving. Well, I want to get to where this transitions, the Paradise King, because I don't want us to run out of time. but. Before we do, Nate, I'm I'm hearing so many of Blaine's experiences and thinking of how much this ties into the feelings of guys who who jump into a Samson group or the Samson community. Almost all of them feel like outsiders, but the second you yeah. join a group of outsiders, it feels like so we're outsiders because we're pushing against what versus we're outsiders together and stepping into something. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts before we transition to Paradise King. And I'm just going to go ahead and uh, read the synopsis again a couple times uh, because it's so good. (laughs) But but before we do, I want to hear your thoughts because I'm just picturing our listeners and like, oh yeah, that's why, you know, after just spending last weekend in Texas with all those guys and there's such a bond. Yeah. And many of the conversations come from the exact same. I'm trying to find my way out of being an outsider into community, but not lose that deep person inside that the, the outsider wasn't a defect. It's, it's has a glory. Yeah. And uh, I think what's crucial is uh, maintaining a proper focus on what we want to create. In other words, Mm. um, What we're trying to create, and I think what our challenge in Samson for the next year is, uh, is create not just good man-to-man connection, but but good community, group-to-group connection, um, and to have a positive, instead of whining about what the church isn't, the church pretends to be a family and doesn't act like a family, tends to be a community and is so antithetical, you know, we and just marinating in our pain and feelings of betrayal. Let's go ahead 
And as uh, when we say in our charter that we are part of the church universal, as Christians, as part of the church, the invisible church, let's go ahead as and and create as and nurture as best we can the community we know. Uh, you know, let's bring into human experience our spiritual identity as the body of Christ. And I said, so it, so it's that positive rather than the neck. It's the, yeah, let's, let's make everybody an insider. I don't know, but I don't. Wow. I got to jump in, Nate. That was so good. I love what you just said and what you're building. And even Mm. the emphasis on tribalism is culture defined oppositionally, right? You, you're defined by what you're against and it's a danger though. Most of us, you know, sense our unbelonging intensely. So there's such a strong mm-hmm. pull to build community out of orphanhood. But what you're doing in saying, what are you talking about? The church pretends we yeah. are the church. Yeah. Let's, mm-hmm. let's build something mm-hmm. that actually reflects the eternal reality that we can sense. Let's build something better and be defined that way. That is how you yeah. build a healthy culture. So I just, I, I applaud you. And and isn't it funny, Nate, when you're talking about that, in every meeting, we make the declaration, we're natural loners, we're natural liars, we're natural wanderers. Everything I would accuse, quote, the church of, every mm-hmm. meeting I'm declaring I am that, and yet <laughs> I can still feel comfortable crapping yeah. on them. Yeah. There is no yeah. them. All right. Yeah. Blaine the mono. I'm sorry. That's I just went Dark Tower Stephen King, but I love the Gunslinger series so much. Blaine, I have take no us. idea what you're talking about. I man. know. You're and making he, obscure literary it, references. Oh, again. but the second But did I saw you it, like the adaptation with Idris Elba is the big no, question. No, nobody that loves the Gunslinger series loves now that Now I'm movie. feeling like an outsider. Oh, but you're I'm really sorry. an insider, man. <laughs> <laughs> but you're one click away on Audible to being an insider. Okay, Blaine. let's find... Let's find a way to tie this into the Paradise King. Uh, no, we just take us there. I'm. I would love to, Nate. Well, let me tell I you, there it. actually is a tie-in, right? Okay. There's, okay. there's oh, a nice. there's a folder that I would mark weird things that are always happening to people, weird things that happen in history over and over again. Mm-hmm. There are so many versions of this story. Let me tell you one of my favorites. So it's the 400s and one of the first truly great ancient world empires, the Persian empire is in a protracted civil war. And one side has contracted a massive uh, detachment of Greek heavy infantry led by a man named Xenophon up there on the shelf of coolest Greeks ever. He's from the and period where you are a general and philosopher and scientist and poet. Well, what happens is Xenophon and his 10,000 get betrayed in the middle of a vicious battle and a war of ascension. Most of the commanders are killed and this detachment of Greek heavy infantry gets stuck in the middle of the Persian empire. They elect Xenophon to lead them out of it, and then begins one of just the great adventure stories, real adventure stories ever. 
It's called the Anabasi, which is sometimes called the March to the Sea, but a better translation of that Greek would be like the Mount Up or the Here We Go. So you have 10,000 soldiers in an area with no food trying to get out of the desert, and they're having to skirmish with Persian princes on their way out. They're fighting wandering tribes people. And they're getting close to the Tigris River when they see what they think is a line of low hills. And shortly thereafter, they explore them and they realize these are the ruins of a city. These are the ruins of a city that would have been bigger and more astonishing than anything that has existed for thousands of years. They don't know what it is. Xenophon incorrectly identifies it. But they are wandering into the ruins of a city called Nineveh that happens to show up in the Bible on several occasions, the old capital of Assyria. Now, what that story means is that, you know, you were, ta- we're talking about the Samson Society and the desire to recover something. Well, that story of Xenophon and his men walking into ancient ruins and wondering what this thing is, is the experience of most Christians in the West when they start asking, what is the church universal? What is Christianity? What is the Bible? Imagine if Xenophon got there and he gets several layers in and the city is alive and things Mm -hmm. are happening and there's furious activity and there are soldiers and there are artisans. That would be a better analogy for the experience of the person who begins to probe the church. Mm. So I wrote this book on accident, guys. I wrote this book because several years ago I was reading Daniel. Daniel is an incredible thing. Uh, there are some, you know, masters and divinity students whose ears are burning in this conversation. But you know, Daniel is written in two languages. I was telling someone I think the best way to get my kids interested in the Bible is to not tell them anything about it. I'm just going to take a copy of Daniel in the ancient language and put it on a shelf somewhere. And, let them find it and ask, what is this? Oh, it's nothing. Don't, don't look at that. Never mind that it switches mm-hmm. languages <laughs> in the middle. And then they'll ask, but what is it? I'll go, well, it's the story of what happened to a few young captives who were deported during uh, the Neo-Babylonian period. And it's a book of prophecy. And I won't say anything else. Certainly not that it happens to be the book of prophecy that is referenced, you know, one of the ones that is referenced most often by Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm reading Daniel 2. It's an incredible story. But I had just been reading some history on the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which is an incredible human story. You know, Nebuchadnezzar II has as his arch nemesis, one of the great personalities of history, a mead named Shinshirushkin. You could not pick a better arch nemesis for a world emperor than Shinshirushkin. I love this story. I'm back in the Bible. All of a sudden, the light comes on. Wait a second. That's Nebuchadnezzar II right there, slouched Mm -hmm. on his throne, having this incredible dialogue with the court magicians. There was an early English cardinal who thought that human beings could sense when they were in the presence of the holy. He called it the illative sense. And he said, you can feel it in nature can feel it when you hear a great story, when you see a child sleeping, when men are around a fire. The meaningfulness of life suddenly becomes clear. That's the illative sense. All I can say is it turned on. 
And I wanted to convey, first I wanted to understand what I was experiencing, and then I wanted to convey it. So I started writing down what I was saying, the way I would tell the story to my kids, and then I would attach a paragraph of commentary. So I would say, let me give you a telling. So I think I, I didn't include that one in the book, but you know that one started, there was a king in Mesopotamia. He inherited a storied empire, and though the powers of that age were great, he armored the chariot and saddled the horse and conquered a large part of the world. His name was Nabad Kaduri Ratsar. And as I would write those stories and then share them, I, you know, I started to see, wow, this is actually helping people understand the Old Testament, which is a thing I care about. But, but in the middle of the Bible, there is this gravity well, Jesus, the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And when you step out into the waters of the canon of scripture, the current pulls you there very quickly. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to give anything like a good sense of any Old Testament story without interpreting it through Jesus, giving a sense of the grand sweep of scripture pointing to and culminating in Jesus. The problem was I didn't want to write about Jesus because I was frustrated with Jesus. And in a season of death and pain, and it, it took a long time actually to come home to the fact that I would have to write about the incarnation, the passion, the resurrection, the ascension. This is going so long, but I'll just say this did is you, the moment. Did that you happened. feel that what you just described? Did you feel in those moments? Because I've had times where I'm like, Jesus, please stay over there. I'm going through something right now. And in my gut, I mostly wanted to keep him there because I knew if I got sucked in by that current you're describing, I know you're going to be fine, Jesus. It's me right now that just wants to be here wallowing in this loneliness and pain. Yeah, well, that- probably. But yes, yes. And I will add some layers for me are... I, in that season, a little color, we had, you know, it was my wife's brother. It was my dad's best friend who was a mentor to me. It was a 20 week miscarriage of a little girl. It was the sudden death of my best friend. Uh, It Mm. felt like everyone was Mm. dying. And Mm. I was reading John. John has a lot of long speeches in it. I was in the middle of one of those and all of a sudden I stop and I find myself saying aloud at the kitchen table, I don't get you at all, which was all I could say. But underneath was this anger and this revulsion and who are you? Frederick Buechner in his book on the gospel is tragedy, Mm -hmm, comedy mm -hmm. and fairy tale. You know, he says, If you are our father in heaven, would you please be our father in hell? Because hell is where the action is. And (laughs) and the character that I was seeing portrayed in the Gospels seemed so bizarre. And I was pretty well acquainted with this person. I was pretty well acquainted with how the Gospels worked, actually. But I did not want to engage the pain. I did not want to get real with Jesus. I think you're very right, Aaron, that one of the reasons we don't want to engage Jesus is because it means engaging our pain. The 
the Anglican bishop N.T. Wright says, you know, there's a dark thread in the scriptures none of us want to deal with until we realize it's the one we need, which is what's this thing with suffering and death and pain? What are all these psalms like, even the dark is not dark to you, even those who have gone down to dust will kneel before you? What is going on that when we enter down into suffering, we don't so much have to ask God to join us as to discover that he's gone ahead and is waiting for us. But it hurts to go there, and I did not want to. I'll tell you, the response that I felt from Jesus was simply, go look. It felt Mm. like a dare. I don't get Mm. you. I don't get how this fits together. I'm not sure I like you. And the response was, well, go see. Go see. Because that's the kind of dare that I really like. I found myself going, okay. I will dive in. I will look for you. I will look through the big threads of this story. I will look for your answer to pain and see if it stands up to scrutiny. And this book is the product of that search. Hmm. Wow. The disciples' invitation with the doubt. Jesus says, come and see. What an invitation. Mm-hmm. Well, let me reread this because I was afraid that this... Uh, I'm not going to reread the whole thing, but the statement, this book draws upon years of research. I'd like to make an amendment. This book draws upon years of research, struggle, and pain to illuminate the story of the Bible through the lives of six kingly characters from Adam to Jesus. Paradise King combines thrilling retellings of these famous stories with cutting-edge scholarship. I feel like I'm believing that at this point. Uh, robust theology to explore topics such as the Bible's picture of evil. And we go on to the result being the stunning portrait of Jesus of Nazareth. I think I believe every word of that. What about you, Nate? (laughs) I'm in. I'm in. I have placed my order while you were talking. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Yeah, you're right about struggle and pain, and I can assure you and our friends listening that the pain and struggle is present in the book. As I was writing, you know, in a season of a deep dive of a changing life script of counseling, I just knew also that I had to start modeling the culture I wanted to live in. And that meant I had to be present in the work. It is one of those odd things. I've heard this from mentor after mentor over the years. And like most young men, it really annoys me until I realize it's actually really cool, which is that (laughs) in the way of Jesus, we very often become what we did not have. And so and you take that template and look at the biblical story and go, ah, so you're frustrated with the lack of authenticity in the church. Well, Hmm. it may be that you will become that. And that the way you will do that is in pain because mm-hmm. it's by passing through death into life that the kingdom is established, both in the subjective territory of our lives and everywhere else. So I talk about death in the book. I talk about what it felt like when we get to the passion scene and just say, you know what, you really have to understand this story and to what it feels like to miscarry at 20 weeks and to have a, you know, a daughter Mm -hmm. and then what it feels like to have that happen again. 
And after mm. the first burial, I really thought I would die if I mm. ever had to do it again. And then we had to do it again. And mm. to be able to go into those sites and uh, honestly, in the territory of my life, begin to experience the work of Christ in those places, the lights do come on. Jesus is so desirable. I can't even tell you guys. It does take a little work to get through the perceived familiarity, the damage of some cultural representations to the legendary king out of the past who made it on earth as in heaven, but it is worth the effort. Jesus is so desirable on the other side of the resurrection that we all crave and desire while we try to pray away the death. Mm -hmm. Oh, don't we though? And so we just don't get to experience the resurrection when we're avoiding death all the time because death sucks. All the little deaths of so many little things. Blaine, how do people get uh, get to know what you're doing? How do they get this book? Where do they go? Give all that kind of information. Thank you, guys. Well, the book, you just go to Amazon and search The Paradise King. By the time yep. this show airs, you can get the any your preferred format and get the paper book back. There is an audio book. If you want to get occasional communications from me, you can go to blaineldridge.com and there is a newsletter there. Also, it's a way you can read a chapter and see what this book is, the combination of storytelling and scholarship. And you do have to enter your email to get the chapter, but you can unsubscribe right away. It was the only way we could figure out to actually code the PDF onto the page. So blaineldridge.com, you're welcome to check that out as well. Fantastic. Well, we, we've reached the end, so we're going to have to wrap it up, Nate. Okay. But, but right. also, listeners, comments, questions, uh, funny jokes, write to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, Nate, you can do the rest. All right. Uh, uh, you don't know the routine, but we say goodbye We uh, personally by name. So uh, you just, when You're the opportunity presents itself, say your name, Blaine. Uh all right. Well, that's it for this episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And I'm Blaine. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hold on. Blaine, can you give us your best pirate arg? Arg. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.